On today's episode of Teaching in Higher Ed, number 461, How to Not Fight Artificial Intelligence and Lose, with Dara Ryder. Welcome to this episode of Teaching in Higher Ed. I'm Bonnie Stahoviak, and this is the space where we explore the art and science of being more effective at facilitating learning. We also share ways to improve our productivity approaches so we can have more peace in our lives and be even more present for our students. Today's guest, Dara Ryder, is Chief Executive Officer of AHEAD, an Irish NGO established in 1988 which is dedicated to creating inclusive environments for people with disabilities in education and employment. Dar became CEO in 2020, having previously managed AHEAD's digital presence and developed a suite of online CPD programs related to universal design for learning and inclusive practice in his role as digital media and e-learning manager there. His research interests include monitoring the participation of students with disabilities in higher education, exploring the learning experiences and desires of students with disabilities, and examining the implementation of UDL in policy and practice. After graduating from Queen's University in 2005, Dara joined Dunleary College of Further Education as a lecturer where he became interested in inclusive education when working firsthand with students with disabilities in his classroom. When the opportunity arose in 2008, he joined AHEAD, where he's been working ever since on creating inclusive environments in education and employment for people with disabilities. Dara Ryder, welcome to Teaching in Higher Ed. Ah, Thanks, Bonnie. It's lovely to be with you today. I've been looking forward to this conversation ever since you agreed to come on the show. Would you start by giving us a layperson's definition of artificial intelligence? Yeah, sure. I mean, I suppose it's important to say, look, I'm not an AI expert, just a very, very interested observer. I come actually from the background of the inclusion of people with disabilities in higher education and really just understanding how we need to kind of reshape our approach to higher education in response to the increased uh, human diversity that we see in our classrooms. And what I'm finding is there's actually a lot of overlap in the conversations around AI and these conversations around inclusion. And that's why I've been kind of pulled into it. Um, But I'm really kind of, uh, I suppose, every day find myself going down a new AI rabbit hole. So it's lovely to externalize some of these thoughts with you today. So in terms of AI, I suppose a a layperson's definition I suppose really it's about the development of systems that can perform tasks that we would typically associate with requiring human intelligence. That's it at its kind of simplest form. So when we think about those tasks, what are we talking about? Things like understanding natural language, understanding visual perception, looking at the speech recognition, how we understand the sounds that we make as human beings from our voice. Also things like physical skills that require dexterity. So if we think about things like robotics uh, and how AI is used within that, or or other processes like decision-making. So it's really about all the cognitive and physical skills that relate to those tasks that we might typically link with human intelligence. And ultimately, the goal of AI, I suppose, is to create machines or software that can learn and reason and adapt like humans do and perform those tasks that maybe previously might have been thought of as requiring a human level of intelligence. 
So it's kind of a, a catch-all term for the algorithms and the statistical models that, that power those machines, really. I'm feeling so much of that catch-all lately as we're having conversations. Just <laughs> last week, we did a panel with some of our students, and I started to feel like in, the, in those moments that sort of everything feels like artificial intelligence at some point. So that, that was a fascinating conversation. I was so grateful to the students to come and be vulnerable to share about ways that they're seeing it being used and using it themselves. And so talk to us a little bit about some of the main categories involved in artificial intelligence. Yeah, look, there's there's a lot of different ways of categorizing AI, different subsets of categories and different uh, kind of fields that, that move across these categories within AI. So you probably won't get a straight answer. I know you've been doing a lot of podcasts on this, Bonnie, so I'm, I'm sure you're getting different types of answers on this. But I suppose if I'm trying to boil it down very simply, uh, most of the, the forms of AI fall into two main big categories, as I see it as I said, as an AI enthusiast. Uh, so the the ones that really to, to stand out for me in terms of explaining AI in simplest terms is machine learning. And the second one is called natural language processing. So what's machine learning? Well, basically it involves training algorithms to recognize various patterns and make decisions based on data that sits in front of it. So I suppose the process of machine learning it involves feeding data to the task that you're trying to to train the machine on into a machine to allowing it to learn from lots and lots of samples of that type of data or that type of process and essentially once a sufficient number of examples have been gone through the machine then has the capability or can begin to process new and unseen examples and return accurate results so it's able to adapt and learn from what's happened before and what's been fed into it before and um, it's able then to to encounter new situations, new encounters, and produce the accurate results, similar to what a human would do. So I suppose if we think about that from a teaching and learning perspective, we might think about this as the machine engaging in active learning. It's it's learning by doing, and now it's able to respond to new situations based on that previous activity. The second form is natural language processing. And we might think about ChatGPT, which is causing a big stir right now across academia, that would largely fall into the category of, of a natural language processing AI. So I suppose in simple terms, natural language processing makes it possible for humans to talk to machines. So in ChatGPT, for example, how that works, it's trained on a massive amount of text-based data to learn patterns and relationships in language. And it uses that knowledge then to generate natural language responses in return. And essentially, it does that by by predicting the next word or sequence of words in a given text. And by doing that repeatedly over and over and over, the model learns to generate natural language that seems to us to be coherent and contextually relevant to whatever text input that we've given it as a, as a human interacting with it. So whatever, I suppose, you when you ask ChatGPT a question, what it's essentially doing is pre predicting a coherent response based on everything that's been fed into it before. So it's putting one word in front of the other, almost like, learning to walk until it eventually kind of learns to run and so it, it seems really super intelligent but essentially it's just a very smart prediction engine so it's, it's probably a little bit more similar to maybe the rote learning approach where somebody is, is is kind of learning what sounds right from the previous instances and repeating that back one word at a time Oh, I love how you've brought in those comparisons to how some of us approach teaching. That's really helpful for me to wrap my heads around these broad definitions. And what's even also helpful for me to understand a little bit better about artificial intelligence is to hear about it in our daily lives. So would you share a little bit about where people in general 
might start to see artificial intelligence. And then I'd love to hear specifically in your life where you're seeing it show up. Sure, yeah. I mean, I suppose it's really important to say that there's a lot of talk about AI now, but it's not at all new. I mean, AI has been around for decades to to varying levels of success. I mean, way back in in the mid-1990s, IBM's Deep Blue computer, which is an AI machine, defeated the world chess champion Gary Kasparov for the first time. So that's that sort of shows you like how advanced already it was at that stage of, of the game. So but in terms of our daily lives, look, people are interacting with AI every day, have been for a very long time. If you're a user of Netflix, you might think about how it's you're being recommended different types of shows. Equally when you go on Amazon, you might be recommended different types of products based on your your usage of the internet or based uh on whether you're, what your device is listening to you and what you're saying in conversations. And um, so all of that information has been taken into an AI engine and it's been used to hopefully recommend useful products, useful shows. Things like your sat-nav um, is powered by AI. Things like your voice assistant. So uh, Alexa or Siri is, is using that, that kind of speech recognition to first of all understand what you're saying and it's then using natural language processing to understand what you want from that and, and, and spit back at you something that's that's meaningful. So all of these things in your daily lives, if you ever played a computer game, you know, that's generally speaking, going to involve some form of AI in the background. But even then, when we think about the, the big stir that's been caused in academia at the moment about writing, I mean, we've been using AI to assist us in writing for a long, long time. So all our spelling and grammar checkers form, there's some fine form of AI sitting in the background to, to varying degrees of complexity. But more increasingly, as we as we move through 365 in, in Microsoft, getting more and more advanced, we see things like Microsoft Editor, for example, which is getting more complicated in terms of the types of suggestions it's making for us in terms of how we phrase particular sentences, the conciseness of our language. It's even giving us scores from our, our spelling and grammar and, and our you know uh, how we write and how clearly we write. So we've been using these things for a very, very long time. So that's quite important to say. In terms of how I've been using it, if I suppose the most recent wave of AI that's been taking us over, so things like ChatGPT, we also have image creation tools like DALI, which is another open AI tool. ChatGPT is also an open AI tool. So my own usage, I'm using it now. I'm finding it really useful. I'm actually using it pretty much on a daily basis now in, in, in some form or another. So I'm using it for meeting preparation. Like if I, you know, I'm a very busy person generally, so... I don't often have long preparation windows for meetings. If I see a topic on the agenda, but I'm not sure about, maybe it's a, a new policy directive or something like that. You know, I'm asking AI to, uh, I'm asking ChatGPT to summarize that policy document for me. And it's giving me a nice, meaningful summary. Okay, it's not making me an expert on this policy, but it's giving me enough to have a, a meaningful input at the meeting where otherwise I might not have had that opportunity. I'm using it to, in my writing now to help me to, Reframe, if, for example, if I'm getting a, I'm writing a paragraph, we, we all have that feeling where sometimes we're just stuck and it's, it feels like a word soup in front of you. And I'm asking ChatGPT to help me out and simplify it for me. And then I'm not just taking that and pasting it in, but I'm using that as a, as a kind of reframing and a starting point in my, in my writing as well. And then increasingly I'm using a, the image creation tools within my, PowerPoint presentations. So I'll give you an example. Recently, I was doing a session on universal design for learning and I was trying to get this analogy of, of not really being able to get to the pedagogical parts of universal design for learning without addressing the, the kind of baseline foundational digital accessibility stuff. So in other words, making your Word documents, your PowerPoint documents accessible. So I wanted to give the analogy of it's like having a really fancy living room furniture without in the snow. 
Like, so you haven't got the foundations, you haven't built the walls, you, you've just got the decoration. Um, and I couldn't find an image in my stock imagery, so I asked <laughs> Dali to create one for me. So I created this beautiful imagery of a living room sitting out in a very snowy, serene field. So uh, that, that is an example of, of really cool ways that you can use AI to help you with your efficiency and your, and your productivity. But I see this is only the beginning for me with, uh, with these types of tools. I, I can just see that we're going to explore all sorts of new and interesting ways to use them. Oh, you're making me so much want to go try that out. I got really interested in and I actually recommended a Instagram account where the entire account is made up in someone's imagination of toys that don't exist. They look really creepy and I can't remember the name of it, but it'll be in a show that's either coming or already happened. But I was showing it to my son last night. He was really interested, but it's, I think for them, this is just the fact that you could have something in your imagination and then have it appear before you is not as maybe miraculous as it feels to me right now, because I just think that that's incredible. And I love that you had that image in your mind and then were able to to have that come through in your PowerPoint slides. I'm fascinated always by all that I've read and learned about the importance of having our visuals match with what we're trying to say. And think of all the freedom that is before us right now to be, be able to live up to the spirit totally, of that guidance. Totally, right? How, how long have we all spent uh, trawling these uh, these stock image sites or trawling, uh, you know, for royalty-free images, even more, probably more relevant for folks in the academic sphere where we're just trying to find an image that lands. And now we have that really creative potential to, to use these tools. And I, for me, it just find it immensely exciting as a, as a kind of phase that we're in with AI that who knows what uh, both ourselves as, as academics and our students as well, what ways they might use AI uh, within their own work. You know, the, the sort of potential seems to be almost almost limitless. Yeah. So you've talked a little bit about how you're seeing it show up as useful in your daily life. Would you talk about some of the reasons that students might turn to artificial intelligence? Yeah, I mean, like uh, we talked, we've kind of alluded to some of them already that, first of all, the, the creative potential there is is amazing. Um I see a kind of AI as having potential in lots of different ways, some of which are maybe negative and something to, to be concerned about or something to at least think through what the implications are and some of which are immensely, immensely positive. Uh, if I just touch on the positives, because to be honest, I think there's enough people engaging in what I would consider almost a moral panic about what's happening in in, in, um, in higher education with regards to chat GPT and academic integrity. I'm going to maybe lean more towards the positives uh, because I think there's enough voices uh, talking about that sort of debate. But I suppose like I, I see it as a great leveler. You know, I see it as almost like the ability to have a, a, a level of a personal assistant there someone who you can you can check in when you don't understand the concept and you can ask a very meaningful specific query about the content that you're engaging in that you just don't get and you can get an additional layer of advice on that yes it's not always going to be perfect yes we have to be careful about how students use it because the, as we know the responses it can contain information that is that isn't correct but i think that's I suppose part of the onus on educators is to actually engage with students on this to teach them how to use it really effectively. Because one of the things, for example, with ChatGPT that we've learned is how you actually construct the prompts is really, really heavily linked with the quality of response that you get. So I think there's actually an onus on us to to help uh, students to understand that, to get the most from it. And so I suppose students can use it in a whole variety of ways. Um, things like, as I mentioned, just checking in on particular types of content. It could be summarizing 
big, big chunks of content into smaller chunks. I mean, I mentioned that I'm a very busy person and I come to meetings and I, I maybe haven't had the preparation time that I'd like. We all know that students are incredibly busy at the moment. They have increasingly complex lives. They're often traveling huge distances because of issues with housing. Certainly here in Ireland, we're in the midst of a, a housing crisis. Obviously, the sort of diversity of our colleges is massively uh, exploding. So we have a lot of socioeconomic dis- diversity within our colleges, which means that people often have to work long hours outside of our, our, our their college life. Equally, we have a whole range of diversity in terms of access and disability, which means that maybe people may need more time to internalize data. So all of those things mean that we need to be realistic about where we are as educators and I suppose plan our pedagogy for the real world and I think AI can really help our students to maybe to chunk some of that information down and and act as a real kind of guide uh, uh, through that information. I suppose in terms of the the sort of more nastier side of things where we see uh, a lot of the talk and a lot of its focus is around how students might use it to produce essays um, and to to sort of cheat in that regard. Uh, So I suppose the the reasons students might do that, look, for me, this is actually an essential part of this conversation is, is about the environment that we put our students in and the purpose of our educational institutions and our programs and I think for me the primacy of grades within our system is something that really really has to change we have moved generally speaking to more standards based accreditation as in especially when we think about things like engagement with our professional bodies or professional programs they're generally standards based and yet we haven't moved away from grades but for me grades actually don't have a place in a standards-based accreditation system at all and the research is very clear that they have real no assistance to learning like grades do not actually aid learning in any real capacity so i think bringing in these kind of unnecessarily competitive systems is actually uh, kind of harm to our students and harm to the process of learning and really they end up driving desperate students to do often desperate things. And I think overassessment is a major, major problem that we have. Often there's not a lot of time and energy spent in a cross-programmatic approach to assessing our learning outcomes. So we're often assessing learning outcomes multiple times, very, very unnecessarily, to the point where students often end up maybe having three, four or five assessments to deal in a very short short window. Sometimes those assessments are, are engaging in multiple learning outcome or the same learning outcome multiple times. Um, I think a lack of authentic assessment is another really big issue in terms of do students actually see the value in, in, in the assessment itself for the purpose of learning? So we know we have assessment for as learning as well. But I think actually all assessments should be for learning, even if they are assessment of learning. So I think do do actually students see the value in the assessment as something that's meaningful for them to engage in that will be useful for them in their lives, uh, professional lives or other aspects of their life. And then I think a big one from my perspective, coming from the disability and inclusion perspective, is the whole aspect of the integrity of their traditional modes of assessment in the first place. So often the academic integrity debate is very heavily weighted towards the student's responsibility to ensure fairness uh, within the process. But actually, I believe that some of the traditional modes have been very, very heavily disadvantaging for students with disabilities. Certainly the data we collect here in the head uh, suggests that. I'll give you an example that always sticks in my mind of a student I interviewed as part of a research project during COVID who told me that prior to COVID, they were failing their 
exams, scraping passes and others. And as soon as they moved into COVID into the alternative assessment modes, they actually moved from failing and scraping passes to the top five to 10 in their class. So the, just, just the change of instrument, um, had an enormous effect and really the, the reasonable accommodations that this student would have been getting before extra 10 minutes an hour on exam was, was a sticking plaster. It didn't, it wasn't a meaningful intervention for them. So really, I think what, what that tells me actually is that the integrity debate needs to be widened out and it needs to be looked at in, in a much more holistic way because I, I would see that almost as a form of, of, of institutional cheating, if I want to use very provocative language, but you know, that we're not addressing these, these issues, that we're mostly doing the examination because it's practical, uh, because it's something we've always done, because it's something that, you know, from an economic perspective that we can a- achieve in a practical way. Uh, so I think those are some of the reasons why I think students turn to maybe the more negative aspects of AI because they need a way out. They're desperate, you know? Um, so we really need to think about that in a very holistic sense and think, how can we create an environment, first of all, where students are motivated to learn for the purpose of learning itself, where they feel entrusted enough, I suppose, that they can they can share what's going on in their lives and that they'll get the flex that they need to engage meaningfully to demonstrate their learning. Wouldn't that be a wonderful place to 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 both begin and end? <laughs> <laughs> that that could be presumed. And this is such a challenge and an opportunity because we can do this as individuals and, and yet our individual work is limited by the number of people that can do this in solidarity. Would love to have you share a little bit about an alternative to our response to artificial intelligence being to fear it, lock it down, try to prevent people from using it, try to win is the new turn it in or, or whatever the plagiarism, when are they going to come out with their latest iteration that will rid us all from this thing that we fear or makes us angry or roots around at our sense of identity and what it means to be an educator. Talk a little bit about a culture of trust. Yeah, it's a million dollar questions. So I suppose one thing is that culture does take time to build, right? So it's not something you can you can switch on overnight. I think it's important to, to almost uh, talk a little bit first about what is, what the response that you were talking about, mm. Bonnie, about this kind of move to lock things down. Well, first of all, it's just a fool's errand, isn't it? Like, I mean, I think if we're honest about it, like there's this is not something that is going to be a successful strategy. <laughs> you know, it's just not possible. Uh, so while you might increase the the numbers of people who are, you know, who are caught under these surveillance systems, really all you're doing is enriching a bunch of uh, grifter companies, in my view, that will have very largely, you know, mixed results. And really, people who are smart and want to do this will do it anyway. Most students, for example, aren't taking ChatGPT, asking it to write an essay and turning the essay in without doing anything with it. And we know already that the tools that are available so far are very poor at detecting um, any kind of alterations to, you know, initially AI produced text. So that's the first thing. It's a Phil's errand. It's kind of like, I, I almost bring it akin to back when the record industry tried to respond to Napster originally, rather than trying to create a holistic solution that brought streaming to the internet in a productive way for them as industries, they instead went to try and lock it down, bring Napster to court, draw that out. And really over time, that resulted in the music industry dramatically losing revenue at, at a record pace. And I think that's been 
overall very harmful for the industry and that it's taken a long time for it to respond and the responses that they have in place now are definitely not necessarily uh, the most productive ways both for the industry and for artists as well so I think that's kind of a good a, a good analogy is that it's a fool's errand to, to actually try and fight this in a major way and I, I'm not trying to say that it's easy for educators it's very very difficult and their educators are largely very very overworked themselves and so I, I have real empathy for the conversations that are going on but what I would say is like the first of all to have conversations with your students about this technology this is what it is this is what it's doing even like from the point of view is it's it you know what it chat gpt for example is largely a predictive model uh, it's largely going to give you a mixed results in terms of the efficacy of what's coming out of it flagging with them that it's often going to make up references you with, with prompts of course you can improve uh, you can improve that dramatically in terms of the quality of that but still having those initial conversations really pointing out what this is all about you know that they're actually losing by using chat gpt in those kinds of ways but actually that there is really constructive ways to use it and um, allowing them to use it but also to maybe reflect as part of their assessment process on their engagement with chat gpt how did they use it what did they find critically as the things that chat gpt was good at or bad at you know so sort of including that as part of the thing and being open about about that and i always find that like i mean being open in those relationships with your students uh allowing them to show their vulnerabilities and, and showing your own is a really really good way to create a, a kind of culture of trust also bringing in maybe more examples of peer engagement where uh, for example if you're doing a peer review of work before submission where maybe there's a point that they they talk to each other about how these tools were used as part of the creation and they also get feedback on each other's work so that you're, you're creating a, a culture of dialogue within the classroom more generally all these things can help i think to create a a culture of trust and then from an academic integrity point of view i think just just having conversations about that is really important because often students don't understand the term whatsoever what it means why it's important and um, so understanding that being in academia is partly about creating truthful process truthful dialogue truthful output and why that contributes to our society in the whole and how they can be part of that conversation uh, by engaging in, in in the process meaningfully and authentically i think that's really the way to go I wanted to try a premise out on you that I just want to play with it for a bit. Sure. So we might presume that you're here to learn as a student. And if you're not here to learn, that's not your fault. Or perhaps I have to soften it a bit and say that's not entirely your fault. And and what would education look like if we were to start with that premise? Is that a good premise to start with, that, that people are there to learn? Or do we need to replace it with something else? Well, first of all, I think we need to be realistic about students motivations and the culture that we're placing them in so we can't pretend they're here to learn fully, that that's their sole purpose yeah. you know in an environment where we, we have they've been they've been culturally taught that grading is important that competition is important that you know we live in a market economy that's going to value that that in some way so you know a lot of people will come into university settings because they want jobs that will give them meaningful authentic rich lives um so i think it's important to, to have those conversations at the beginning that you know how can learning assist them in their goals really is what it's about. So mm -hmm. it's about linking the the goals of the course and the goals of you as an educator 
to how that can help them in their real lives and help them to understand that, you know, if they're using these tools to kind of take shortcuts, that that may seem like a, a good approach in the short run, but really in their longer term goals of being the best that they can be in their job. And, and if, if that is what their goal is, that really it's not going to help them, that they're, they're only kind of storing up problems for themselves later in life, that they may get a, they may get a B grade instead of a C grade this time around, but actually, you know, they're storing up problems for themselves later in life because they'll be exposed very quickly in a workplace setting and um, where there's potentially much closer between a boss and a, an employee than there would be in maybe a classroom of 400 students and an educator and the, the time kind of time to uh, ratios there just don't match up so i think that's really what it's about it's about helping them understand how your goals and their goals align really yeah and it does circle back to what you said earlier about authentic assessment because if we were doing that more effectively, collectively in higher education, that potential for that kind of thing to happen would be a lot less because the assessments would resemble the expectations, both in the workplace, but also I think many of us would say in society to be you know, engaged in, in civic life in ways that totally. are for the betterment yeah. of our society. Yeah, totally. And I, I think um, when we look at the sort of the graduate outcomes that we want for our students often the universities and colleges will have specific stated outcomes that they want to imbue their graduates with but increasingly they're often things like our critical thinking skills our reflective skills we're increasingly moving away from the kind of you know the hard kind of skills of maybe writing or you know it's it's increasingly more about our engagement with information and how we analyze it and interpret it so i think that's also a way in for us to have those dialogues with our students to show us this is actually what em- employers want from you as a graduate. This is what we want from you to create, uh, to give you the opportunity to develop as a university. And part of that is, is actually that meaningful uh, critical engagement with the content, you know, so chat GPT can help you fake that, but that's only going to help you fake it till you get out the door, you know, and maybe, maybe not even till you get that far. Uh, so I think having those kind of, conversations with students to, to show them the value of the assessment for the purposes of how it can help them in their lives and how it can help them to develop as human beings. Yeah, and I think if we're experimenting with it ourselves, then we're going to be probably in a better position to speak with credibility and because we've seen what it's capable of doing. And that's, that's, that's I, I don't know what kind of makes it an interesting thing to consider how our own engagement with these new technologies. And as you said, some that's been around a while, but maybe we haven't had a chance to play with as much can be helpful in this endeavor. Yeah, totally. I think even engaging with that with your students, and I think it's useful if you can have that dialogue with your students. How are you using it in your life? You know, how are you, this is how I'm using it. And you can show that you have some kind of understanding of what it's all about. I think that has it serves a dual purpose, I suppose. One is that it shows your own kind of vulnerability in a way, or that you're willing to explore and use these tools to, to support you in your own work. Uh, it shows that you have an understanding of them. So, you know, that you, you won't have the wool pulled over your eyes uh, about how students are using them. Uh, but it also gives you a point of, of being able to draw lines about, you know, asking your students, well, look, what do you think is reasonable for me as an educator to, uh, you know, accept in terms of you using these tools? Like what's what's actually useful to you to use these tools that doesn't prevent us from actually addressing the learning outcomes and moving forward and developing as students. Um, so having that kind of honest conversation with students, I think is, is useful. This is the time in the show where we each get to share our recommendations. And I wanted to recommend the article that was the impetus for me inviting you to today's conversation. And that is one that you wrote called AI is Here. 
If we fight it, we'll lose, and so will our students. And this is from the AHEAD Journal. I'm going to link to that in the show notes and hope that people will take a read. A lot of our conversation is based around that article, but I felt like I just really appreciated the ways in which you expanded my imagination beyond sort of the the fear-based and the resistance-based and into something more nuanced and, I believe, helpful. And I mentioned, uh, oh gosh, maybe a couple of months ago about our family deciding to invest in YouTube. I forget that what the paid services, but we don't have to watch commercials anymore. It's lovely. It's absolutely <laughs> lovely. But man, does that does that algorithm really get dialed in with me? Because <laughs> it presents me with a lot of videos from what I would best describe as tech bros talking about all their tech bro stuff. And one of the things that <laughs> I like to watch about is how artificial intelligence is showing up in our daily lives. And so there's a guy who runs a channel called Daily Tech, and that's T. E-K-K. And there was a video I wanted to recommend called AI Apps for the iPad. And I just think it's interesting. I, I own an iPad. And when we own these devices, I find it fascinating just to think about ways that go beyond my current usage of how it could help me either get some things done. It was actually kind of back to what you said, Dara, about the broad two types of artificial intelligence. I mean, to see that show up on, on such a simple device that I mostly use for consumption, it's kind of an intriguing idea. So I will warn you that that when I link to these videos, it's a little tech bro, but we can handle a little tech bro <laughs> as we uh, learn a little bit how to get more out of our devices. So that's what I want to recommend. And I'll pass it over to you for whatever you'd like to recommend. Yeah, I mean, I, I, if it's okay, I'm going to recommend a couple of resources around the universal design for learning approach would be uh, an advocate of that approach, partly because it touches on so many of the topics that we've discussed uh, today, you know, big, the first principle of UDL is all about really providing multiple means of engagement. So that's really about understanding why our students are in the room in the first place. You know, we talked about that motivation and, and how our teaching and our pedagogy connects with that motivation. Uh, so that's, that's one part of it. But yeah, so as the first one is, um, is a book called Reach Everyone and Teach Everyone. So it's an introduction to universal design for learning. And in terms of creating that culture of trust that we talked about. I think it's an absolutely brilliant book. I mean, it goes through the full gamut of, of UDL as a, as a concept. But for me, the strength of it is all about that engagement with the students and creating a community of learning that that is, is very authentic and gives students, hopefully motivates students for the purpose of learning itself. So that's a book by um, Thomas J. Tobin and Kirsten Belling. And you know, I know Tom Tobin through my work and he's just a brilliant communicator around these type of topics. So I'd, I'd highly recommend engaging in, in anything uh, that Tom produces. And the other piece is actually in a head uh, piece in a, from the organization that, that I work for ahead. So we're an NGO focused on creating inclusive environments in education and employment for people with disabilities. So we actually have a whole series of short courses that we've released this year, which are two hour free self-directed short courses on a range of topics that are all about um, inclusion and education, including actually there's an intro to UDL there. So they're all housed in a, a little sort of subset of our website called ARC, which stands for uh, Accessibility Resources and Know-How. So head.ie slash ARC and you'll get five free short courses there that any educators right across the world can engage in. 
Oh, that sounds amazing. I did spend quite a bit of time exploring your website when I was preparing for today, but missed that. So I can't wait to go back and explore that. And of course, suggest that listeners do just the same. Dara, thank you so much for joining me for today's conversation and for responding to my invitation to come on the show. That was It was really wonderful. And I hope, hope your listeners get something from it. I'm sure they will. And thanks again for being on Teaching in Higher Ed. Today's episode was produced by me, Bonnie Stahoviak. It was edited by the ever-talented Andrew Kroger. Podcast production support was provided by Sierra Smith, who will only be Sierra Smith for a short number of months before she has a different last name and I get to say a different last name during this conclusion. Thanks to each one of you for listening to today's episode and being a part of the teaching and higher ed community. If you've yet to sign up for the weekly update, head over to teachingandhighered.com slash subscribe and you can receive the show notes from the most recent episode as well as some other goodies that don't show up on the main part of the episode. Thank you so much for listening and I'll see you next time on Teaching in Higher Ed.